0: Uh, aware of the fact that we're now well over, what, 230 shows? Somewhere
1: in that neighborhood, Mark.
0: Yep. So that uh, gets us to, you know, what are some of the things that might be new for our listeners. And basically, as we've been talking about this, it it occurred to me that, you know, not all of those 230 shows are on our website at this point. And maybe we should just uh, go back to some of our basics and uh, maybe do a series on what is uh, sexual addiction and uh, how we define it, uh, some of the major components of it. One of the things that makes me think of it is that uh, when Debbie was on the show, she was talking about what can be helpful to a wife. And uh, one of the things she strongly believes in is that uh, wives need to be aware of, uh, or they need to be educated about addiction. And so when I speak at the Wives Workshop, that's often what I do. I try to define addiction for them so that they will have some you know, basic understanding of it. So that's kind of what we're going to go over today. And in the next few shows, we'll try to outline some of the basic components of sexual addiction.
1: Well, I think it's always a great idea, Mark, to emphasize the basics. Uh, We sometimes find ourselves trying to creatively be think outside the box, or what have we not addressed yet? Mm -hmm. And so often it comes right back to the basics you know no one's more qualified to speak about the basics of sexual addiction than yourself so uh, I kind of liked it when you came up with this idea today uh, I think our listeners are going to enjoy this
0: well let's get into it uh, let me just give a little history of uh And the reason maybe I think of it is because there is afoot uh, some efforts to put together collections of contributions in book form of some of the early days of the movement, some of the early days of uh, the sex addiction field, and... Today at lunch, I spent a few minutes talking to the president of the intergroup of one of the 12-step fellowships for sex addiction, and he was challenging me to go back to some of the early memories. And In the meantime, uh, one of my colleagues and I, Dr. Jennifer Schneider, are putting together a collection of uh, chapters for a book that some of the early pioneers in the field of sex addiction have written, and uh, so it's kind of a time, I think, as some of us are older, that Uh, we're kind of wanting to get um, back to some of the memories of how the field got started. And uh, uh, the sex addiction field is really only as old as 1976, when the first group of men met to try to use the 12 steps to uh, uh, recover from the various acting out behaviors that they were doing. And uh, so when you look at that, that's less than 50 years that the whole movement has been uh, out there. And to this day, you know, it remains somewhat controversial as to whether or not sex addiction is a, a definable mental health disorder or, you know, is it uh, somebody's invention uh, so that uh, they can make excuses for why they're, you know, doing inappropriate behaviors.
1: Well, uh, while you're on that subject, I, I've always kind of been tempted to ask you, understanding that fact that it hasn't been certified as an addiction. What do you feel is is the reason for that? Competition
0: and jealousy and uh, uh, possessiveness. In other words, uh, I think some of the psychiatric community has been resistant to it because uh, they didn't think of it first. They uh, uh, haven't been exposed to it in terms of their training. They are somewhat uh, jealous of uh, the popularity of it in terms of, uh, you know, how popular the books are about it and, and so forth. So, uh, I don't know. I think uh, psychiatrists are uh, rather uh, stubborn or they're rather uh, resistant to change. And, you know, that's been a part of it. I think others legitimately have, have really thought that uh, what has been described as sexual addiction could be classified uh, rather as a compulsivity. That's been the earliest debate that raged back when I first got involved in the field back in the early, no, the early 90s, the late 1980s, and uh, I'm always fond of the story of uh, uh, Bill uh, W. and Dr. Bob, who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, and back in the 40s, Life Magazine did an article about uh, Dr. Bob and Bill W. in terms of uh, the growing movement uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Dr. Bob, being a physician, was invited to speak to the American uh, Psychiatric Association. And he went over some of the theories about the 12 steps and alcoholism and and so forth. And when he was done, he uh, sat down and and people were applauding. In fact, I think he even received a standing ovation. And he turned to the president of the uh, APA and said, I'm surprised they're applauding my theories. And the president said, uh, I don't think they're applauding your theories. I think they're uh, applauding your success. So in other words, there are those people out there that wouldn't agree with our theories, our definitions of things, uh, but I do think they have to be uh, somewhat accepting of the uh, success rates that some of us have in terms of uh, treating this addiction.
1: Well, we know for a fact, and the uh, statistics prove it out, uh, that sexual addiction is at an epidemic level right. in our world today. and. Uh, you know, we're confronted with uh, those who are struggling, struggling with it each day when the phone rings. We know by the number of men that continue to come to our Men of Valor three-day intensive workshop every single month that, uh, th- that this problem exists and th- that it is at an addiction, uh, certainly at an addiction level. Uh, so is, is it just a matter of time that we're waiting until the psychiatric community uh, accepts and embraces the fact?
0: I think so. In fact, the current edition of their uh, manual that defines all the disorders uh, says in the introduction to the sexuality chapter that uh, we anticipate a time when in the revised editions of this, uh, uh, the diagnosis of sexual addiction will be included. So it's around the corner and. In the meantime, I, I think uh, those that uh, read about it, read books about it, in other words, or hear about it or hear the definitions of it, and they themselves are struggling with it, they, they clearly identify with it. I, I, I knew that was true for me when I uh, read the first book, Doc, Dr. Patrick Carnes' book, Out of the Shadows. You know, I knew that it applied to me, and uh, it just made sense. Right. Uh, all right, so, you know, when I think about defining sexual addiction... Um, I think of uh, several main features. And to go back and give some background about this, uh, Dr. Carnes has always been interested in trying to define sexual addiction and the kind of categories that the American Psychiatric Association would be happy with. And you have to kind of be familiar with those. It would take way too long to explain. But there have been lists of 17, 18 or more characteristics of sexual addiction. And uh, I always found those helpful. But uh, also at times way too, um, complicated. I, I, I think the definition of sex addiction could be dumbed down in a way to about four or five different factors that if you struggle with these factors, chances are you struggle with addiction.
1: Well, and is this a good way for a listener to do, uh, kind of, a, a self-evaluation to, to get an idea of whether, uh, what he's experiencing is definitely a problem?
0: Yeah, that would be true. So, uh, you know, as we go over these, uh, if you're listening and you haven't been involved in getting any help or treatment uh, and yet these characteristics, uh, you know, make sense to you, then
1: obviously our encouragement would be that you uh, do reach out for help. mark at this point uh why don't we squeeze our break in right here and then when we come back we're going to let you launch into this you are listening to dr mark laser and this is the men of valor program at FaithfulAndTrue.com to learn more. That's FaithfulAndTrue.com. Time now for the Trigger of the Week.
0: Trigger of the Week. uh, Since we're doing kind of a retrospective show, we thought we could go back to one of our uh, older triggers which is universal and that is the fact that uh, as we're recording the show it's uh, kind of in the middle of uh, springtime and uh, some of the men are obviously coming in noticing that uh, women are wearing less clothes so it's getting warmer and the shorts and uh, I think uh, even Sherry our administrator was mentioning halter tops I'm
1: I'm not sure that's a I'm, new fashion. I'm, I'm not sure fashion, whether that's uh, still a, a valid um, fashion, fashion element, but yeah. uh, but it is the season, you're right.
0: Well, we don't need to go necessarily into specifics. It's just, you know, this time of the year when um, people are wearing less clothing, that that tends to be a trigger that we could. We could also have said, uh, retrospectively, that spring break, which we've just, a number of us, uh, You know, done that, you know, going to some of the spring break locations, you know, that could be a trigger of the week as well.
1: So, well, then with that in mind, why don't we uh, return our listeners to this uh, retro concept that we're talking about today?
0: All right. Uh, The first characteristic of sexual addiction that we always think about is the word unmanageability. And um, that comes basically straight out of Alcoholics Anonymous tradition, where, you know, the first step of AA is I admitted that I was powerless over. Alcohol and my uh, I, my my sins with alcohol had become unmanageable. Um, so, uh, the twelve steps for sex addiction have adopted the same kind of. I admitted I was powerless over lust or sexual acting out, and my life had become unmanageable. When we think of unmanageability, we basically think of one criteria, and that is that at some point the addict has tried to stop, wanted to stop, and hasn't been able to stop. Some people worry that when we Talk about this being an unmanageable problem, that the addict has absolutely no control over it. Uh, we worry a little bit that it kind of absolves them of uh, responsibility for their personal decisions. And I've obviously thought about this you know, quite a bit over the years. And uh, what I am talking about here is the perception on the part of the uh, addict that they have tried to stop or made attempts to stop uh, but haven't been able to. I really think that uh, one of the definitions of addiction, um, uh, and it should be consistent with biblical teaching and biblical truth. And when I start with that, I always think of uh, uh, Paul's writing in uh, Romans seven fifteen, when he says, "The sins, or the good that I would, I don't do; the evil, or the sins that I hate, you know, that is what I do." You know, that is a statement of unmanageability, and I think all addicts would say that, too. The good things that I want to do, I don't do. The evil sins, the sexual acting out that I don't want to do, that is what I do. What Paul is actually, I think, uh, talking about there in this rather lengthy passage in the book of Romans uh, is that uh, we all are inheritors of original sin, and the problem with original sin back in the Garden of Eden was that uh, Adam and Eve did not trust God that he meant what he said, uh, or that his commandments were to be obeyed. Um, They were distrustful, I think, at some level. They were disobedient at some level. They knew God was there. They had talked to God. They had been provided for by God. But at some level, they wanted to take control back for themselves and eat of the fruit of uh, this forbidden tree. So I think, you know, if we're inheritors of that original sin nature, there's part of addiction that is... Um, distrustful of uh God and his ability to provide and care for us, and it 's also uh disobedient it 's looking at his commandments and and uh rebelling against them so when an addict is aware that they 've made attempts uh to stop, uh, my belief is that uh it 's not that they 've been half hearted uh, but I think at some point they 've they 've kind of wanted God to do all the work they they really haven 't wanted to do the hard work for themselves. And there's been a part of themselves that has just not been trusting. And then there's a part of themselves that uh, just wants to to have control. So it's kind of like a, a paradox. Uh, uh, the more I think I don't have control, the more probably is the case that I've tried to be in control. And I haven't um, surrendered my sexuality uh, uh, fully to God. So that becomes the second and third step of the recovery program. We finally surrender the will and control of our life to God, um, and it's only when we make that final and complete surrender that we're able to uh, get
1: freedom from sexual addiction. Up until that point, uh, do you feel that the average uh, addict has been waiting this whole time for God to take control? I think they've been praying and wanting God to uh, remove it, and...
0: uh, uh, their perception that he isn't willing to do that is what leads them to anger, and that also leads to rebellion. In the meantime, I think a lot of addicts have been following formulas. You know, they they pray more or do this, do that, do X, Y, Z, follow these uh, uh, injunctions or whatever. And, um, you know, one of the things for our listeners to think about for those that are, you know, re- relating to this, you know, what attempts have you made to stop that haven't been successful? But then a more important question do you really feel like, in your attempts to get free of this, that uh, you you have, in fact, fully surrendered all of your uh, behaviors to Christ?
1: Because, as we have experienced here, it's it is not until you uh, surrender completely right. that the healing can begin. That's right. That is exactly it.
0: So, this is a long uh, uh, thing to think about spiritually, and uh, uh, but I do know, and you know, for myself and countless thousands of others that. It's only when we get totally broken and humble um, and s- surrender our will to God that that then does, it. strangely enough, you know, give us the final piece about um, getting free of this. Number two, and this is one of my favorites, and we've talked about this any number of times on the show, for something to be classified as an addiction, it has to create neurochemical tolerance in the brain. And uh, that means it has to create some chemical substance in the brain, the sexual acting out behaviors, even the sexual uh, uh, fantasy or thought behaviors uh, has to create a neurochemistry in the brain. And the brain has the ability to adjust to whatever we put into it. Alcoholics will eventually need more alcohol to achieve the same effect. Cocaine addicts, nicotine addicts, methamphetamine, heroin, you know, all of those, you know, caffeine might be another one. Uh, We're going to need more and more to achieve the same effect. Uh, with stuff that we ingest, like alcohol, you know, we kind of get that. What we don't fully comprehend, I think, until we get educated about this, is the powerful neurochemical substances that are released when we even just think about sex. And, um, you know, the first one, one of my favorites is adrenaline. The next one is dopamine. Um, When we start touching ourselves or others, we release oxytocin. And uh, I uh, believe that our brain adjusts to adrenaline. And Addressed to dopamine and addressed to uh, oxytocin, and uh, we're going to need more and more adrenaline-filled things, more and more, you know, pleasure things or dopamine-related things, and so forth. Um, that's why the average addict, if they're relating to this, can identify that over time their addiction got worse, which is actually the third criteria, which means that if you are creating a neurochemical tolerance. Um, you're going to need more of the same drug to to achieve the same effect. And that means over the course of time, since you first started doing this um, to the present day, um, you've needed more thought, more pornography, more masturbation, more acting out with uh, other people. And uh, that's just what we call progression. So neurochemical tolerance and progression, numbers two and three, are absolutely uh, related to each other. Be careful because sometimes... You know, this progression can take place over, you know, long, 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 long periods of time. And a lot of the addicts, you know, during certain times of their life are able to stop for a week or a month or a year. The problem is when they get back to it, and they will, if they don't get help, um, they'll get back to it at the same level uh, at which they were when they left off. And you can always see um, this progression. It could simply be that your fantasy life goes from something fairly tame to something even, you know, more adrenaline-filled or exciting or dangerous or illegal. Uh, you know, we've seen that a lot with uh, pornography, that guys start looking at fairly tame stuff, and before they are um, uh, finished and get help, you know, they may have graduated toward the more explicit stuff, and even in some cases the illegal stuff like the underage stuff. So anyway, number three is it's progressive because of the neurochemical dependence in the brain. All right, that's first, second, and third characteristics, and you know they're really all related. Number four is that the neurochemistry of sex addiction is used to medicate feelings, so we've talked about this any number of times that you know going back into childhood and adolescence, you know the average addict learned that um, the 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 neurochemistry like adrenaline adrenaline is a natural antidepressant so You know, if they were lonely or lost or feeling uh, estranged or feeling depressed, you know, they may have found that, you know, sexual thought, sexual behavior was a natural antidepressant. So they they come to associate using those neurochemicals uh, to manage moods. And that's another way of uh, uh, putting principle four that if you have coped, if you have used you know, the neurochemistry of sexual arousal and sexual activity to medicate a mood, you know, that's, uh, that's one of the criteria, and you've met that criteria. And until such time as you're able to unhook this association, it's going to be hard to get free because this may be um, a drug that you've been using for, you know, in my case, it was 25 plus years uh, that I was using this uh, to try to manage my emotions.
1: Well, and you have said before uh, that uh, many will use acting out as a remedy for everything from insomnia, you know, or having trouble falling asleep, and they they, they feel that uh, that's going to be the answer that's going to put them in the state of mind that they can relax and find themselves falling asleep. That's is that true. true?
0: That is true. Yeah. A lot of times that involves oxytocin, which is the neurochemical you get when you touch in this case yourself. So you're in bed and you can't sleep and you learn how to touch yourself and touch yourself genitally. And, uh, that does have uh, mood calming characteristics to it. And, uh, and
1: yet you're, and yet you're elevating your adrenaline because you're, yeah. you're becoming aroused. Uh, you yeah. would think that it would be counterproductive.
0: Yeah. But when you get to the oxytocin and then you get to the orgasm, you know, there's another set of neurochemicals released that uh, are like heroin and their effect and, you know, have a very uh, uh, sleep-producing quality to them. All right, there's just a couple other things we could talk about, uh, you know, particularly to the Christian community. I think uh, another criteria, number five, could be sex is used as a reward. So uh, uh, you feel like in life you're not getting your basic needs and desires met, so uh, you decide uh, based on your, uh, in a way, self-centeredness, to uh, provide yourself with your own reward uh, sometimes addicts who do this after they've gone through a period of time where they feel like they've been doing lots of good things, you know, they feel like uh, uh, they are entitled to a reward, and so uh, sex can be used to reward yourself. And uh, that kind of helps a, a Christian sex addict to, you know, justify, which I don't, by the way, you know, there are there is no um, uh, healthy justification for any of this, but I do know that um, that's how they justify it. So, you know, there's everything from my wife is not available enough to life is too hard, been working way too long or whatever it is. And I deserve a break today. So, um, anyways, if sex is used as a reward, that's a characteristic. And then finally, I would think sex sometimes give, uh, gives us a sense of power that I have control over things, which is, you know, counter, um, intuitive to, you know, the first principle, which is that it it's about being unmanageable or out of control. I was just talking uh, this morning to a pastor who obviously has some struggles and tensions in his uh, church and uh, struggles and tensions in his marriage, and uh, he was saying that uh, it seems like he doesn't have control over much in his family or his marriage. It doesn't seem like he has control over much in his church that he pastors, but uh, he said, I always felt like I had control over my use of the internet, uh, that I could turn these things off or on depending on what mood I was in. So uh, I think it gives us a false sense of power. Um, Those of us that have ever had affairs or acted out across the flesh line to get another person to be willing to be sexual with us, I think gives us a sense of being wanted, being chosen, some of those desires that we talk about, and it gives us a sense of power. So, you know, those are the six things that I think about, and I've gone over them quickly on a short show like this, but, you know, you you always ask me for final thoughts. My final thought is that if you related to any of this, probably you did because you're one of our listeners, you're probably one of our alumni, and you know about this, but uh, if for some reason you're new to the show and you're relating to this, um, then, you know, take it seriously and uh, reach out for help. I mean, the greatest... uh, enemy of sexual health, as we've always said, is silence. So if you, you know get to a place where you're recognizing some of this, but you're too shameful or too afraid to reach out for help, uh, I would just encourage you uh, to take a risk and do that, because it's only when you're willing to talk to somebody can um, the true healing uh, begin.
1: You have been listening to Dr. Mark Laser. I'm Randy Everett, your co-host, and we thank you for joining us today. Uh, we hope that today's message, as we take you back to some of the basics of the teachings that we uh, believe in here at Faithful and True, uh, I hope that this has all been beneficial to you. We hope that this jump your week and that your week will be filled with many blessings